Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 7, so please turn there with me, and then Bridge Kids, you are dismissed. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7. Dave Gibson of Idaho Falls tells the story um, of a man uh, who was a sergeant in the army and also was a heavy smoker. And the sergeant had tried to stop smoking for over 25 years. He had tried many different ways and had many different attempts. And when he went to see his army doctor for um, his uh, physical, his, um, for his regular medical exam, his doctor reminded him again of how detrimental smoking was for his health. And the sergeant confessed that he knew he should stop, and he shared the many uh, times that he had tried and been unsuccessful. And then the physician looked at the soldier and said, what are these two bars on my lapel? And uh, the sergeant responded, um, they mean you're a captain. And, and then the physician said, they also mean I outrank you and I'm going to give you a direct order to stop smoking. Sergeant went home and never smoked again. He couldn't quit on his own. He tried it many different ways. But he did quit when he was given a direct order by his superior officer because he had been highly trained by the U.S. Army of what authority means and what order means and what responsibility means. And because of that value that he had, this isn't the normal way to overcome an addiction, by the way. It says something about this value that this man had. So here's the question. If Jesus Christ is Lord of all, are we willing to take his commands in the same way this sergeant takes the commands of his superior officers? Think about that. Our passage today begins with the story of another military man in Luke chapter 7. And let's look at this passage, Luke chapter 7. And this is a story of great faith. So um, here we go in Luke chapter 7. I'd like to read the first 10 verses. When Jesus had finished saying all this, in the hearing of people of the people, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. 
For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and this one come and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. And the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So let's have a look at this. Great faith. And let's go back and look at the context here in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all of this, so what was all of this? Well, that's Luke chapter 6, the context. Always think in terms of what's around this whole, what's the story here? And Jesus had just finished the Sermon on the Plain, which is real similar to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Here, Capernaum. And now he returns to the city of Capernaum. And um, so uh, let's uh, just look at, we always have to have a map when we see a name of a place. So this is uh, kind of first century Israel. And if you go up to the top, you see Capernaum. And there's a little body of water there, that dark spot. That's the Sea of Galilee, which is just kind of like a lake around here in Wisconsin. So Capernaum's on the north shore. And that uh, has become Jesus' headquarters. So this is the Galilean ministry in the northern part of it, uh, Israel. And much of his public ministry takes place in that upper part of Israel. And um, so Nazareth is his home where he's raised. And uh, Jesus is in Capernaum right now. The situation is in verses 2 and 3. And by the way, this is one of my favorite stories. This is a man's story, I think. I think you women will appreciate it too. There is a centurion's servant whose master valued highly was sick and about to die. So there, a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick. Near death. So a centurion is a military leader. Uh, This centurion is very likely a Roman. A centurion is responsible for a hundred men. During this uh, period, centurions also had uh, different groups of men that weren't always 100, but this was the appropriate title, a little bit like an army captain. Um. He could have been um, a centurion in the Roman army, the regular army, or he could have been a centurion responsible for a detachment of troops delegated to Herod Antipas. One thing would be sure is that he would be a Gentile or a non-Jewish man. Um, He had a servant that was near death. And it shows something about this man that he valued his servant highly. He cared. Uh, He cared so much that um, he's going to reach out. In the first century, with this attitude of uh, servants and slaves, this, this uh, centurion could have simply valued this person as property, and when one wears out, you get a new one. But this, this uh, man seems to have compassion. Verse 3, the centurion heard of Jesus. We don't know. We don't know about previous experience with Jesus, He'd heard. 
Jesus is a man who heals people. Jesus is a man who helps people. And um, he sent some elders of the Jews to him. Now, if you just read that facet, oh, I, he sent, this is awkward. How does a centurion have any authority to send the elders of the Jewish people to Jesus? If you uh, remember a little bit, um, Gentiles weren't appreciated very much by the Jewish people. At least that was kind of the norm. Jewish people kind of thought they were a cut above and that God really wanted to bless the nation Israel and didn't care a lot about the Gentiles and the whole problem they were experiencing. They often blamed on the Gentiles and the presence of the Romans. Um, Romans didn't necessarily have a high value for Jewish people because Israel as a nation is a very small nation. They have no power. Rome rules the world. This is, a, this is a, a centurion would be a tough guy. He rules men. He makes decisions. He listens to people whine and he takes care of those problems. Uh, he's experienced with death. And uh, yet he has this relationship with the leaders of the Capernaum community. Um, so the story is getting interesting here because we're learning a lot about this centurion. He knew about Jesus and thought he could help. The centurion is attracted to Jesus. He reaches out to Jesus. He sent the elders of the Jewish people. And um, this shows that this centurion has a good relationship with this community, a good relationship with these leaders. And verses 4 and 5, these leaders come as messengers to send a message to Jesus from the centurion. Verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. Um, these leaders are cheerleaders for the centurion. They are on his team. They support him. And they say, this man deserves to have you do this. Now, I don't know that this is all about good works. This is about his reputation. He is a man of noble character. The, the elders of the city, the leaders of the city, those men who stood around the city gates and made decisions and passed out advice, they probably did more than that. It wasn't always that beneficial, but they were highly respected people in their communities. And they come to Jesus and they commend him to Jesus. Verse 5, because he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. There we learn more. The centurion loves the nation Israel. He cares about the Jewish people. That is not the typical response that Romans have or Gentiles have for, um, for the nation of Israel. Now, this uh, centurion was concerned so much that he gave a very significant portion, a large amount of his resources to see that the synagogue building where the Jewish people worshipped, where they came together in Capernaum for prayer and for the reading of the word of God, 
He was the primary person responsible, maybe entirely, to financially support this so this building could be built. He's a generous man. And uh, did he do that just for political reasons? I don't think that's what this story is about. I think he's attracted to God. I think he's attracted to uh, this, the true and living God that he has found connection with in, through the Jewish religion, where he's been attracted to the high morality, that there is one God, and he's a loving God, and he's a just God, and he's a God of mercy. He's a creator. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us that he understood all those things. But there were a lot of people who were attracted. And uh, sometimes the scripture calls them God-fearers or God-fearing people. Doesn't say that here about him. But this is the kind of guy he seems to be. And he's pretty ready to meet Jesus. And... um, so the leaders say, uh, he deserves to have, have you do this, Jesus, because he loves our nation and he built our synagogue. And so uh, we see the encounter in verses 6 through 8. Verse 6, so Jesus went with them. He likes this story. Jesus, by the way, Jesus knew what was in man. We learned that in the Gospel of John, and we can see it throughout the book of Luke. But Jesus moves toward this situation Um, Jesus changes his plan because Jesus is going to help. He was not far from the house. Jesus was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends. So first the centurion had sent the elders of the community as representatives to speak for him. Now, why did he do that? Because he's a hot shot, a big shot, and he just likes to show people how influential he is. I don't think so. So he sent friends this time, and the friends are to speak in his behalf, and they speak for him. And here's what his words were, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. So the centurion, is he lazy? I don't think so. I think it's, he's just super humble. He understands some things about God that he's been learning about. And maybe even he knows about some prophecy that speaks of the one to come who would be the Messiah. And maybe he even thinks he might be the Messiah. We don't know that. But he doesn't want Jesus to be humiliated to come to his house, a Gentile, and Jesus being a Jewish rabbi. And what the first century culture understood is if Jesus went to this man's house, Jesus would be defiled. He would be considered unclean. Jesus moves toward this situation. And then uh, verse 7 says, uh, That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word. Just say the word, Jesus. And my servant will be healed. Interesting. So the centurion doesn't come to Jesus face to face. He sends people because he doesn't want to embarrass Jesus or humiliate Jesus. 
But he understands something about Jesus, that Jesus just needs to say the word and it will be done. Verse 8, he explains himself, for I'm, I myself is a man under authority. He could say, I'm a pretty important guy. I, I have a lot of power. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm a man under authority. Uh, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go. And he goes. And that one, come. And he comes. This is how it works. You give directions and people follow. You give directions and it gets done. That's what happens when people are under authority. Do this and he does it. The centurion clearly understands Authority, he understands how power and authority work together. It is quite simple for him. The centurion realizes that Jesus has the power and the authority in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm to heal his servant. He believes that. I don't think a lot of people that had crossed their mind. But here is this centurion who is sort of trusting God from a distance. It just makes sense for him to go to Jesus for help when there is nothing to help his servant. Jesus can just say the word and it will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In verses 9 and 10, we see the Reaction. First, we notice Jesus' reaction in verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. He was amazed. This brought joy. I bet this brought a big smile to Jesus' face. He was amazed. He was impressed. This was faith that was pleasing to God. And He turned to the crowd because he had a message to say to those who were there, to those who were listening. And apparently he wanted us to hear it as well. I tell you, I have not found such great faith, even in Israel. And that's a kind of a big deal because Israel has had the scriptures for 1,500 years up to the first century. They knew the story of creation and they knew about The story of Noah, they knew about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and how God started the nation and gave promises to them and he planned to build a great nation and to bless them and he gave them law under Moses, gave them a constitution on how they should live. He promised to give them land and then he gave them the land under Joshua. They knew all that. That there was going to be a promised Messiah to come. They knew that. And yet... There's no great faith like that in Israel that we find in the centurion. You know what? That would include the disciples. They're learners. They're learning to follow Jesus. They're learning to follow their leader. They're going to take some missteps. Because that's what we do when we learn. But here is a man of great faith, and Jesus wants us to see it. So, verses 1 through 10, we saw this... um, Great faith. Now we're going to see great compassion in verses 11 through 17. Now Jesus is going to head south. 
verses 1 through, or 11 through 17. We, we see the context in verse 11 soon afterward, right after this uh, event with the centurion and after this servant is healed. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. So let's look at map number two again. So here we have um, Capernaum. We see that. This is a little bit closer up. And then remember Nazareth, about 30 miles away, is where Jesus um, grew up. And Nazareth isn't even going to be mentioned in this passage. But Nain is just a real small town, a few miles south uh, east of Nazareth. And so that's where they are. Now, there's a large crowd following Jesus. His disciples are with him and a lot of curiosity seekers. And um, that brings us to the situation in verse 12. As he approached the town gate, so city gates, very common, the outer part, uh, often a wall around the city. Uh, A dead person was being carried out. The only son of his mother. She was a widow, and a large crowd from town was with her. So Jesus is coming to the city. They are at the city gates. Jesus has a large crowd following him. Here comes a dead person with his mother and a whole large crowd following her, and they're going to meet together at the city gates. There's Jesus, and there's this woman. And she's probably walking in front. And she's a widow. She's lost her husband by death already. Now she has lost her only son. That would be pretty sad in the first century. It's pretty sad any time we have death in the family. But in the first century, it meant no more financial resources or a hope for financial resources Because the husband provides for the wife, and the wife can't go out in the first century culture and get a job and get paid. There's definitely work for the wife, but she's not going to get paid. And so she doesn't have a husband to support her. Now her son could be a teenager or a 20-something young man. He's dead. And he's not going to be able to provide for the family. But she cares a whole lot more than just family provision. And her, family, her husband's family line will not be carried on because of the death of their only son. And um, these two groups approached Jesus. When the dead person was being carried, there was no coffin or um, casket like we sometimes think of. A dead person was carried on a beer or a B-I-E-R, and it was like a wooden stretcher, and then the body on top wrapped in a shroud or like a heavy blanket for, for us. And so uh, we have this encounter. Verse 13 through 15. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. So Jesus is moved by compassion. Jesus moves toward this situation out of compassion. Nobody asked him to come. Nobody had any requests for him. Jesus is moved by compassion. And he says, don't cry. 
Now, that doesn't sound like very good advice when somebody has just lost their son. And by the way, um, this, this burial, that means the death happened less than 24 hours because their custom would be to uh, bury their dead within 24 hours. There was no embalming by the Jewish people, and uh, they uh, quickly uh, buried their dead. That was always their practice. And so this is fresh, and this is new uh, to this woman. And Jesus, just out of his compassion, just out of identifying with her broken heart, he says, don't cry. Now, crying would be a, a normal, healthy response. At least we would say that today. And I don't think Jesus um, was saying her crying is bad. I think he's getting her attention and just like, what? You know, and there's Jesus and Jesus has her attention. And then he went up and he touched the beer, this uh, thing carrying the body. And the bearers stood still. Jesus just halted this whole procession, which is, Kind of uh, out of character. It's kind of out of you know social norm to do this. And he comes up and he touches this uh, beer and um, stops the whole thing, which would defile him, by the way. But he doesn't get defiled by this. In fact, he's going to change everything right here. He touched the beer and... He said, young man, I say to you, get up. What's going on here? It's just say the word. Jesus just says the word. And he gives a command to this body, to this young man who is dead. He gives this command. Verse 15, the dead man sat up. Can you imagine what that was like? You know, everybody's there. They're, they're weeping. He's really sad. And all of a sudden, he looks around. Who are? What's going on here? This looks like a funeral. What's, what's going on? He began to talk. And then Jesus gave him back to his mother. Sort of like Jesus took him by the arm off of that platform and, and just walked him over to his mother. And gave him back. By the way, the Gospels record three occasions that Jesus brought people back from the dead. Three miracles where he brought back people from the dead. Maybe he raised more people from the dead. But uh, just to clarify here, this is different than last week. This is different than Easter Sunday morning when Jesus was raised from the dead. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it was proof of his victory over sin, over death, and over Satan. And Jesus was given a new body, a body prepared for eternity. It was a physical body and a kind of an eternal spiritual body. Theologians have worked hundreds of years describing this, what the resurrection means. It's a real body identifiable as Jesus. Someday, you who are followers of Christ will see him face to face and you'll know all about it. And the Bible also says that uh, one day that those who uh, believe in Jesus and follow him 
we'll receive a new body as well when Jesus comes back, a resurrected body, a changed body, one that's prepared for an eternity. And it just won't be your soul in heaven. It will be all of you. All of your person, physically, uh, spiritually, the whole of you. So, what are we to make of this? Well, very simply, this person, this son of this widow, his body was raised, and then he would go on and experience the normal aspects of life, whether it was injury or aging or illness, and at one point he would have faced physical death. Scripture says, uh, just as it is uh, destined unto us once to die, and after that the judgment. Physical death is the norm. There, there are exceptions to this, and this is a miracle by Jesus. And later, uh, the apostles in the book of Acts, you'll see this as well. It's not the norm. It's rare. And yet, this Jesus does. And it proves, it shows his power over death. We see the reaction, verses 16 and 17. They were all filled with awe and praise to God. This is the appropriate response. Um, Bringing honor back to God, giving God the credit, giving him praise, glorifying God, giving him appropriate worship because this was a God thing and they got that. And that was the purpose. Remember, miracles authenticate the messenger and the message. And Jesus' ministry was authenticated. So they, they were filled with awe and they praised God. And they said, a great prophet has appeared among us. That was a great insight. I think they probably pat themselves on the back for saying that. A great prophet has appeared. A prophet is one in the Old Testament who spoke for God. By the way, Elijah was a great prophet in the Old Testament, and he raised somebody from the dead. And Elisha was a great prophet in the Old Testament, and he raised somebody from the dead. Now Jesus raised somebody from the dead. He must be a great prophet. True. Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses tells about a prophet to come, but he's not going to be just a prophet. He's going to be the prophet, one like Moses. But we know much, much greater. And yes, Jesus was the prophet. But his audience, they don't really see all of it here. They just know he's a, he's a great prophet. That's good. Verse 17, uh, or then the next, uh, God, the, the people say, God has come to help his people. True. God has come to help his people. God has visited his people. There were prophecies about that in the Old Testament. And when God did special work, that's the way you would describe it. God was visiting his people. God came to help his people. God came to deliver his people. So they they see that Jesus is truly from God, and they get that right. But there's a, a whole lot that they don't know yet about who Jesus is. But they're learning Verse 17, the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. The good news just continued to expand. 
Okay, here's some quick lessons. Number one, humility is the mark of a serious follower of Christ. Humility is the mark of a serious follower of Christ. This describes a centurion. He was a man of position and authority with power, yet he was a very humble man. Humility should mark us if we're Christ followers. Humility is essential for us as Christ followers. A um, couple of reminders. First Peter 5, verse 5. In the same way, Peter says, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. I think he's just reminding, sometimes young bucks have a tendency to think, get a little high and mighty, and he's just, okay, just be humble, guys. And then, but he makes sure it's for the whole group. All of you, whether you're old or young or right in the middle, whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Now I want to jump to the next verse, not to 1 Peter, but we're going to jump to Ephesians 4. The Apostle Paul writes, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. As for us, Christ followers, be completely humble. That's understanding who God is and understanding who we are. It's not thinking too lowly of ourselves. We're created in the image of God. He made us uh, to be marvelous human beings. We have a whole lot of things that separate us from the rest of the animal kingdom and make us unique and distinct and highly valued so much that he would send his Son, uh, for God so loved us that he, he had reckless love and he would send his son to die for us. High value, being a human. And in Christ, we have so much identity being forgiven and being children of God, but we're not God. Citizens of heaven, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, sealed by the Holy Spirit. So many things, who we are in Christ and our identity. But, Humility is understanding who God is and we are not him and understanding what he's done for us. Be completely humble. Centurion was a great example. Secondly, faith takes God at his word. That's pretty simple. That's one of the simplest definitions. Faith takes God at his word and is pleasing to him. The centurion had great faith. He understood that what Jesus said was true. He understood how one lives under authority. That's how God wants us to live. Under authority. And he wants us to trust him. He wants us to live out. Day to day. Day by day. Following Christ. Uh, Galatians 3.11 says, The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Uh, We come into a relationship with God by faith. We trust Jesus Christ to save us from the penalty of sin by faith. That's the beginning of the Christian life. We start there. And then there is the Christian life. It's how we live after we trust Christ. When we follow Christ and the righteous live by faith, 
after they trust Christ. Two different concepts, trusting Christ by faith and then living by faith, but they're by faith. They're both about taking God at his word. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's so simple. I bet a lot of people in the room can quote it, but how often, how much time in your day are you living without thinking about God or bringing God into your circumstances or recognizing that you are operating with his values, whether it's being thankful or whether you're asking him for strength. Um, By faith, we follow Anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, no big deal, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Thirdly, third lesson, just say the word kind of discipleship means I will follow my leader, Jesus. That's Luke is all about follow the leader. This is how a person under authority lives. Just say the word. I will do it. This is about yielding uh, my life to the Lordship of Christ. He is the master. He is my leader. He is my Lord. I am his servant. It, you know, so often we want God to be our servant. We're Christians. We know we're supposed to pray. And we want God to help us be happy. We want God to... To help us with our problems. Well, that's good, but we're all about our stuff. And the Lord's Prayer says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth that is in heaven. That's before we get to my stuff. Seeking God's kingdom first is before my kingdom. You know, our, our Christianity has got to be more about God fixing my health, taking care of my kids. Those are important. But God has a, an agenda that's very good. And it's first. And we can, we can ask God to help us with all of the problems. It's a, keeping his agenda, his priorities first. Matthew 28, 19, 20. The Great Commission, our purpose as a church helping people connect with God and developing them into fully devoted followers of Christ. But the key is, are we becoming fully devoted followers of Christ? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That's what we're to do. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we are to do. And teaching them to obey everything. Because we are under authority. Everything. So we don't get to pick and choose the ones that we like. Teach them to obey everything. Just say the word, Jesus. John 14, 15. Jesus said, if you love me, simple. If you love me, keep my commands. That's how you show your love to Jesus. Uh, a lot of people say they love Jesus. I've heard them. But oftentimes, it's about if things are going well. 
if I like my circumstances, if my needs are being met. John 8, 31 and 32. To the Jews who believed in him, to Christ's followers, he said, if you hold to my teaching, what does that mean? It means if you do what I says, if I do what I say, if you follow, if you obey everything I've commanded, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. You are genuine. You are the real deal. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Thirdly, let God be in charge of your life and your circumstances. We have a fourthly. Let God be in charge of your life and your circumstances. Whether things are going great or whether things are going poorly. You know, circumstances, there's what's going on inside me and there's what's going on outside of me. My circumstances surround me and my circumstances in here. You know, sometimes our circumstances are things like, no one likes me. I don't have any friends. Oh, that might be true. Um, My health keeps getting worse. Or how about, I just keep getting older. My bills are more than my income. Every week, my boss doesn't treat me fairly. Boy, that may be true. My parents don't understand me. That could be. Jesus told us in John 16, 33, he said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Jesus has been talking in John 14 and 15, and now in 16, what it's going to be like when he leaves. In this world you will have trouble. That's just normal for us. Why do we think it's supposed to be different? Because we're Christians. That God's job is to make us happy. It's not the case. Jesus said, take heart. I've overcome the world. That's what his resurrection was all about. We are not there yet, folks. We are not yet what we will be. And there is a time coming when there are going to be no more problems and no more tears and no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 7. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Because in this world, we have troubles. The Apostle Paul got that. He understood it. And he had a ton because he was a very aggressive Christ follower. And and he took a lot of heat for being a Christ follower. follower. And you can read about it in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, But God gives us comfort. That's what this is about. The God of all comfort. He's our God. He's the one we worship who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any other trouble, the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So, Jesus wants to be 
the Lord of our lives. He wants to be the master. He is the commander in chief and he has all authority and power. And he desires us to be just say the word kind of people. So I'd like us to take a little time of reflection here as we close. Could we just all bow our heads together? And uh, I want you to speak to God silently from where you are. Who is in charge of your life? Who's running the show? Who has control? And sometimes we think we're letting Jesus be our leader when actually we have taken charge. A good way to think of this would be um, if you're willing to do this, just put your hands on your lap and now uh, close your hands into fists. And imagine just for a moment that in your hands are things that you have charge of, you have control. Maybe it's just an area, part of your life where you're not sure you can trust God, where you feel like you've just got to keep covering all the bases and keep spinning plates or whatever it is to have control. The question is, can you yield totally to God? Give yourself totally to Jesus Christ. He's the master, I'm the servant. Now, if you're willing, will you turn your hands over and open your hands and give everything over to Jesus Christ right now? What are you holding back? Can you offer yourself to God right now as a living sacrifice? All that you are, all your body parts, your heart, your mind, however you separate your decision-making process. Offer yourself totally to God. Father, we come before you today humbly. We're thankful that you sent Jesus Christ for us. Thank you that he died and he paid the penalty for our sin. Thank you that you did, didn't just want to save us, but you want to help us to live. And you want to be our leader and our teacher and you want us to follow God, we just want to, we want to right now just give ourselves to you individually. We want to give ourselves to you as a church body. We want to submit to you humbly. We want you to be Lord. We want you to be able to just say the word and we will do it. Empower us with your Holy Spirit. Give us your strength. Help us to become those people for Jesus' sake.
Amen.